This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Narkarni. The Vikings personify the capacity of a people to extend their culture and influence across vast areas of the world. Over a millennium ago, Vikings braved long-distance sea travel in fragile boats to explore and colonize the faraway Nordic islands before anyone else. But a new study reveals that when Vikings arrived at the remote Faroe Islands, located between Norway and Iceland, there may have already been people and domestic animals who had settled there from the British Isles. An interdisciplinary team of researchers have woven a complex and convincing tapestry of evidence to document that there were earlier colonizers than the Vikings, by centuries. Their tools and approaches come from genetics, stable isotopes, macrofossils, sediment cores, and even sheep droppings. Our guest today, Lorelai Curtin, is the lead author of the study. She is an earth and environmental scientist at the University of Wyoming, and she carried out this study at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University in New York. Lorelai, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for taking the time. Lorelai, I found your article about the timing of the settlement of the Faroe Islands fascinating from so many angles. So I'm picturing you in your chemistry lab, but I also took a look at the map of your study sites. And it seems that they range from Australia to Easter Island to the far north of Scandinavia. And I'm wondering, how do you identify which specific site to work in in these remote areas? Sure. So one of the things that we're looking for, and really one of the reasons why the pharaohs were so interesting to begin with, is because people colonized them so late in Earth's history. So if you think about the history of Europe and the history of North America, humans have been around for tens of thousands of years in Europe. and But in places like the Faroe Islands, where they're so remote, humans have not touched the landscape until very relatively recently. And that makes these places really interesting targets because we can understand how the ecosystems respond to climate change in the past without the influence of humans. And for this study that you published, you and your co-authors published in the journal Communications Earth and the Environment, um, could you describe where you did the field work for this for this study? Sure. So the Faroe Islands are in the remote North Atlantic. Uh, they're sort of halfway between Norway and Iceland, and they have lots of different lakes on them. We decided to do the field work at a lake that had been previously studied because there's a very well-established Viking archaeological history there. Um, so there's this old Viking site that in the 80s, they decided to dam the lake for a hydroelectric dam, which flooded the site. So right before they put in the dam, um, a bunch of archaeologists got to completely excavate that site. So we know for sure that the Vikings were there. And we thought, you know, if you're a Viking, you get to the Faroe Islands. There's not very many places to land a boat. The landscape is very rugged. And you might see that people were already living somewhere and that might look like a great place to live yourself. So that this place where the Vikings had already lived might have been, if there were people there before the Vikings, that might be where they would have been living. As a field biologist myself, um, I'm always interested in what it's like to carry out research in the field. And I'm wondering, what were the logistics of your day-to-day when you were actually doing this field work? Did you stay in villages? Did you interact much with local people? Sure. So we 
usually in a place like the Pharaohs where there are established communities, we usually, you know, get an Airbnb or, you know, the equivalent there. Um, so we bring a couple of inflatable rafts uh, that are just shy of 50 pounds. So you can check them as a checked bag on an airplane. Um, And we bring um, all of our sediment coring equipment with us. uh, So we travel heavy. uh, But we when we get there, we often need help from the locals, just planning logistics, getting permission. And by far, everybody on the Faroe Islands was so kind and so helpful. No kidding. Yeah. And I think that it's a pretty common response when we talk about what we're doing. You know, we tried to make sure that they understand that, you know, we're interested in the climate, we're interested in the human history, and we're using this mud at the bottom of this lake to understand that. Um, So, you know, oftentimes we'll be looking, you know, we'll fly with our boats, but we can't fly with a boat motor. So we need to get a hold of a boat motor somehow. So go to the local hardware store and you ask them and they say, oh no, we don't have it here. But if you go down to the boat club, they might be able to help you. Oh my gosh. Um, so we usually spend a couple of days just kind of getting to know people, trying to find what we need. Every once in a while we'll get, you know, a we our last trip we got um, our coring equipment really stuck at the bottom of the lake. Oh my gosh. Put it out. So we went to the hardware store bought a bunch of lumber, explained to them what we were trying to do. They helped us kind of put together this little, um, this sort of platform that we were hoping we would be able to get the coring equipment out, which didn't end up working. (laughs) But um, so far and away, the Faroe Islanders were so kind and so helpful. And um, we're really grateful to them, especially to, you know, we worked with some people at the local Faroese Museum, the National Museum. And they really know the archaeological history so well. Um, So we had a lot of really great conversations with them. That sounds wonderful. I think that sounds great. I noticed in your acknowledgments, um, I noted that you gave special thanks to someone named Simon Arga from the the Faroe Islands and the the National Museum in Torshavn. And so was he one of these special people who really took an interest and gave you you help? Simon was the most helpful. Um, He... Really, he was the person that we kind of got in touch with first, um, and he was really interested in what we were doing. We went back recently, uh, I think right before COVID, so <laughs> fall, we went back to take some additional cores, and um, I got to show him all of our data, and he was just really excited about it, and asked the sort of hard quitting, hard hitting questions that needed to be asked from an archaeological perspective. And then unfortunately he passed away um, right before the paper came out. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But he, he was so helpful and he is such an important figure in the archaeological community. So we were so grateful to have. Fantastic. I love that you included him in the paper. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and noted his importance and his presence in your study. That's really fantastic. From the introduction of your paper, I learned that the traditional view of settlement of the Faroe Islands um, was believed to have been settled by Viking explorers in the ninth century. And, and that seems to be consistent with the timing of this sort of broad Norse expansion. But you also mentioned that there's indirect evidence that this that there was, in fact, earlier settlement of the Faroes. And I was wondering if you could describe to our listeners, what were those hints that you built upon to pursue this research? 
Sure. So yes, as you said, there's always been sort of this intriguing possibility that people might have been on the pharaohs before the Vikings, before the Norse. Um, and it falls to a few different lines of evidence. One of them is pollen in sediment cores. So this is a really um, traditional method for reconstructing climate in a lot of different places, but also looking at human influences. So you can imagine that in a landscape where people haven't been growing any crops, you wouldn't find you wouldn't expect to find any barley pollen before people get there, right? And then all of a sudden, if you see barley pollen in your sediment core and you know the age of the pollen, then you know that people must have been there. So, so really, each species then has a signature pollen grain structure, and that has allowed pollenologists, people who study pollen, to say, oh, there's there's this much barley, this much spruce, this much juniper, and so forth, and in in essence kind of reconstruct what the vegetation was around this particular lake or habitat. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing we like to keep in mind and the reason why we go back to these sites is that every, we call these different lines of evidence proxies in a sediment core. Proxy has its strengths and has its weaknesses. And one of the things about pollen is that it can be transported very long distances. It's not necessarily a super local signal. Um, and if you think about vegetation changes, if you exclude sort of bar, you know, barley, which has, is obviously from people, vegetation changes can be caused by many different factors. And there were signs that there had been vegetation changes in sort of the, the period where we thought people would have first arrived. But it's hard to attribute those changes to humans directly unless you can totally exclude any other environmental factors. So this is something that hadn't really been done in the pharaohs yet. I see. Fantastic. You know, one of the things I really loved about your study was the way that you and your colleagues mustered evidence from many different disciplines, used different tools, different approaches uh, to get to the answer to your questions. It was like gathering all the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle with these different pieces of evidence. And it seemed like the first line of evidence that you you presented was um, sediment properties using radiocarbon dating. So I wonder if you could describe that approach and, and what it tells you. Sure. So you're totally right that we did. We gathered sort of a group of people who had strengths in a lot of different areas. And I like to say that science is a team sport. Um, (laughs) Nice. You really need a lot of different people with a lot of different skills. So there are parts of the study that I didn't do myself and that I depended on, you know, colleagues and collaborators to be able to do. Um, And the radiocarbon dating is definitely one of those things. Um, So um, for to understand the physical properties of the sediment, the first thing that we need is to understand how old the sediment is. And so we use traditional carbon-14 radiocarbon dating, uh, where we pick small bits of vegetation out of the sediment core. Um, and we send them to, there's only a couple of labs in the U.S. that could actually make this measurement. So some of them get sent to UC Irvine, some of them get sent to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And they are able to make those radiocarbon measurements for us. Um, and then to understand just sort of what makes up the sediment is a very basic question that can tell you a lot. And um, to do this, we actually just burn small samples of sediment. So you take a, a small a cubic centimeter of sediment and you put it in an oven at 500 degrees Celsius and burn it. Um, and if you weigh the sample before you burn it and you weigh the sample after you burn it, that gives you 
a sense of how much organic matter is in that sample of sediment and you can reconstruct the organic matter content in the sediment core. Got it. Got it. Um, another a tool or approach that you used was um, fecal biomarkers. Like, What are fecal biomarkers? Yeah. So when I, this is where my membership on the team comes <laughs> My particular expertise is using lipids that are preserved in the sediment. Um, and fecal biomarkers are molecules that are derived from um, molecules that we're more familiar with. So cholesterol, for example. So if you eat cholesterol, which we all know we're not really supposed to do, but we do. Um, So if you eat cholesterol, you have gut bacteria in your gut that degrade that cholesterol in a way that's different than how it's degraded in the natural environment. Um, So in the guts of mammals, you have the production of these molecules. This one in particular is called caprostanol um, that are then deposited on the landscape in feces. So we can use that as a tracer for the presence of livestock and humans uh, because we know that that molecule would not be around in very high abundance prior to human occupation. That is fantastic. I mean, Talk about an indirect clue. I think that's incredible. But also, I mean, again, this is what I love about your paper and the fact that you brought together all of these different experts um, from different disciplinary lines. That seemed to be corroborated by evidence in an earlier paper you wrote about the composition of leaf wax biomarkers in these lake sediments. Can you talk about that piece of evidence? And was that critical? Yeah. So that paper focused more so on the climate over the last 10,000 years and really the last 130,000 years. Um, So really trying to understand climate change in the Faroe Islands on a long-term perspective. And we use leaf waxes because um, when, when plants grow, they use water from the soil and they use carbon dioxide from the air. And they preserve the stable isotope signatures of the water and the carbon dioxide. Um, And the stable isotopes in water in particular are very sensitive to climate changes. Um, So the precipitation that feeds that soil water comes mostly from the North Atlantic. um, But changes in circulation and changes in the state of climate in the North Atlantic cause changes in precipitation isotopes. So... It's another sort of indirect proxy uh, where we're trying to sample precipitation isotopes in the past using these leaf waxes preserved in lake sediment. And that paper found sort of an overarching um, cooling and drying trend over the last 10,000 years. Um, but writing that paper really did make me realize how important this human history story is, even from, you know, besides the fact that it's interesting because humans are naturally interested in the people that came before them and in our history, it really did, you know, it drives home the point that when people get there, they do mess up the environment to the point where it makes it very hard to interpret a climate record. Interesting. Um, I think that's a lesson that we've learned from many, many different studies and lines of evidence, unfortunately. Exactly. Um, What you just said earlier was really interesting about how humans are curious about their predecessors. And another thing that you mentioned was your use of uh, DNA tracking of actually the composition of the current human population and how that might reflect what happened, you know, 
centuries before. And I wonder if you could talk about the the paternity maternity aspect of what you found in terms of ancestry. Sure. So this is work that we actually didn't do. Um, there's a couple papers on the Faroe Islands in particular, but there's been a lot of research into the population genetics of people of the North Atlantic islands. Um, And one of the trends that you see broadly across the North Atlantic is that the paternal DNA tends to be more Scandinavian and the maternal DNA tends to be more from the British islands. Um, And this is true in Iceland. It's true in the Hebrides. It's true in a lot of island populations in the North Atlantic. However, in the Faroe Islands, that asymmetry between the paternal DNA and the maternal DNA is much more pronounced. Oh, and so how do you interpret that? What does that mean? So there's a lot of different ways to interpret this. What we think is that potentially that could mean that there was a pre-existing population of people from the British Islands on the Faroes when the Vikings first arrived. The alternative explanation, which is also very likely, is that the Vikings went to the British Islands first. We know at that point that they were, before they came to the Faroe Islands, they were very active in the British Islands and they were raiding um, in a lot of places. So it's also very possible that they went to the British the British Islands first and brought women from the British Islands to the Faroes. You know, given all of these different lines of evidence that we've talked about and that are described in more detail in your paper, what can you just sort of summarize what your conclusions were from this study? Sure. So our conclusions were that we found evidence for the first arrival of humans uh, using mostly fecal biomarkers and also ancient DNA stored in the sediment. Um, And we were able to assign an age to that arrival. And it, we found that people first arrived around 500 CE, which is about at least 300 years before the Vikings or before the Norse first arrived. Interesting. So the Brits got there first. That's, you know, that's one thing where we can't actually say who these people were. This is still a really interesting and open question because our evidence tells us that people must have been there because sheep were there but we don't have any way to really directly address who these people were. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think it's still a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of signs that point towards the British Islanders, just based on sort of the inconclusive um, sort of suggestions from the Faroese history and um, place names and things like that. We We still don't really know. One thing we do know is that we don't think at that point that the Vikings were sailing. That was just not the technology that they had adopted. They were still rowing. And we know that people from the British Islands at that point were using the sail. So my preferred interpretation is that... Yeah, yeah, I want to hear this. I know. Is that it probably was the Celts. It probably was people from the British Islands. That's what I think. But we don't have strong enough physical evidence on the Faroe Islands to support that. So Interesting. Um, One question I had is kind of a two-part question, which is about why people care about this. I mean, firstly, 
did it seems from what you described earlier that local people are really interested in this. They were welcoming to you. They wanted to help your research go along. They were interested in your results. But I'm wondering, like, what is it that motivates them to care about that? And secondly, why should we, you know, people who live far, far away from the Faroe Islands, and, and this went on, you know, two millennia ago, what is it that we, why should we care about this? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question because I sometimes forget to think about this because I, as the person doing the work, I'm obviously very curious. Yes, I understand. Right. Um, so I think, you know, going back to something I said before, we're, I think all people are curious about the people who came before them. And, you know, especially here in the U.S., those relationships are obviously very tense and understanding the indigenous people who were the caretakers of this land before us, I think is really critical. And the geoscience community especially has a lot of work to do in order to strengthen those relationships. But in the Faroe Islands, I think, you know, my original curiosity for this came about because we were trying to understand these climate records and trying to figure out at what point does human influence overpower natural variability in this ecosystem. And I think that is something we can really appreciate broadly that, you know, it connects us to our understanding of how we influence the world around us. Um, how, you know, especially today when we're having ecological crises, we're having the climate crisis, we need to know what are we responsible for? What did these systems look like before people got here? And what can we do to be better stewards of the land that we live in? That that was great. That was really articulately said, and I appreciate that. Um, I know that you're an expert in the chemical analysis of organic molecules and in compound-specific isotopes, and you've used these tools to learn more about past environments. So you have expertise that could take you in many, many different directions, especially now with the interest, you know, the deep interest and concern of climate change. So um, what we're wondering about is what is next for you in terms of your research? Yeah, well, for me, what I'm working on now um, is understanding climate variability in the Rocky Mountains. Um, so I've been using the same biomarkers and new ones to me. You know, I like to learn new techniques all the time. So I'm using biomarkers to try to reconstruct snowpack. And, you know, I'm here in Laramie, Wyoming. So in the snowy range, which is 40 minutes away. So it's kind of nice to be, you know, it's great to go. To <laughs> also really nice to work in your backyard. So, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I've been working to understand snowpack variability in the snowy range. Um, and I'm now, you know, getting more and more interested in issues in the Western US. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going. For this project, though, we have lake sediment cores from all over the Faroe Islands at this point. So I think for this project, we're really interested in understanding how widespread were these early people? Is this, you know, did we happen to pick the one watershed where people were there early and we could see the signal or is this something more broad? That sounds like a perfect next, next study, really. Um, and here's a last question for you, which is, you know, obviously you're, you're sort of at an earlier stage of your career, but you're well along. And, and this paper has attracted a great deal of both um, academic as well as popular attention. 
Um, so I can imagine some young people going like, oh, I want to be like Lorelai. I want to do all this really cool exploration and, and understanding and chemistry labs and everything else. I'm wondering, do you have any advice for other people, especially younger people who might want to do the kinds of, of research that you and your team have done? Sure. So I think obviously what what I do, I think what I do is really cool, but that's going to be different for everyone. And you're going to be most successful when you're following your own interest and working with a team that you want to work with. I think it's really important to, you know, if you're a young scientist, you're applying to grad school, make sure you have an advisor who's going to support you and be there when you hate what you're doing because it's going to happen. Um, and, you know, also try to follow your own curiosity. If you're trying to do a PhD on something that you think is boring, it's not going to work out. So, you know, I, I think I honestly really struck gold with this project because I came into grad school interested in paleoclimate and was kind of presented with this opportunity to work on these sediment cores from the Faroe Islands. That honestly is just kind of a stroke of luck. Um, <laughs> But I think you can do good science in any area. You don't have to have a big splashy paper to be a good scientist. Follow your interests, follow your curiosity, build a good team, and try not to compare yourself to people who have big splashy papers because it doesn't necessarily mean they're a better scientist. I think that is fantastic advice for everybody. That is really perfect. Lorelai, thank you so much for this, you know, your descriptions and, and helping us understand this fascinating piece of scientific research that you and your colleagues have carried out. And we all wish you the best for your work in the future at the University of Wyoming and beyond. So thanks again for this. Thanks so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.